some passages that seem to indicate that God has a design and uses evil like he uses everything to ultimately bring glory to himself. So evil ultimately will bring glory to God. Angels are observing, and God is displaying his glory to angels. And Mark 1 Corinthians 4.11, notice that uh, there are observers to everything that's going on on earth. This present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, and roughly treated in our homes. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Now skip to verse 9. That's that's their situation. Lots of hardship there. Okay, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both the angels and Both the angels and the men. Notice that little phrase, angels are observing, and the glory of God is displayed in the midst of hardship. Ephesians 3.10, Connie. Okay, who's observing? Rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. These are angelic creatures. They're observing what's going on. And just one more, There's, there, I've got about five more of these. But here's an interesting one, 1 Corinthians 11.10. And the context of 1 Corinthians 11 is an exhortation to women submitting to their husbands, submitting to that authority. It's almost just, it almost seems like it's thrown in. I don't think it is, but a little comment that he makes that uh, gives us some insight here at the end of the verse. 11.10, 1 Corinthians 11.10. Why? Angels. Angels are observing, and God is displaying his glory to angels. So number seven is this whole area of what God is doing to reveal himself to angels. Number nine, we've talked a little bit about this, but on your package of arguments or bits and pieces of the biblical worldview on evil, God deals with evil. And we've seen that. Romans 5.16. Loretta, do you want to read that one? And Mackenzie, 1 Corinthians 15. God taking sin and evil. This is where he dealt with it on the cross. Got it? 5.16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand the judgment arose, from one transgression resulting to condemnation. Okay, that's what Christ accomplished on the cross. He dealt with sin, and that's what I put on that chart. And you could read that whole passage, that one in chapter 3, just kind of explains that whole issue. And then he's going to ultimately deal with evil as, this is just one passage, there's others as well, but 1 Corinthians 15, you want to read uh, 24? This is at the very end of history. That's the millennial kingdom. He's going to deliver the millennial kingdom to the Father. Keep reading. All his enemies. He's going to put all the enemies. In other words, he's going to deal ultimately with every enemy. Evil. Keep reading. Last enemy. Last enemy. Death. 27. 
forgets that all things considered it is the limits of all things are it is pretty easy except that all things are in That's Christ. Christ is accepted. He's the exception. Keep reading. Thirty twenty eight. That God may be all and all, or ultimately glorified. So that's the ultimate dealing with with evil. So that's your package. That's your nine points that tell you what the biblical view of evil it ultimately is going to be dealt with. It's bounded. It's ultimately going to be dealt with. So that's the answer. That's the biblical answer to evil. The conclusion, our Lord is glorious beyond what we can imagine, that he can even use evil to bring glory to himself. And I gave you some of the major passages that indicate that. There's others as well, by the way. Also, yet he permitted evil for his glorious purpose. God has permitted evil for his purpose. If you just think about it also... If evil did not exist, just imagine God did not permit evil to enter the universe. There would be no salvation. So there'd be no experience of salvation. Because there'd be nothing to be saved from because there's no evil. Because God has permitted evil, it creates a need to be restored and need for salvation. So we couldn't see, really, we couldn't see the grace of God because the grace, by definition, grace is poured out on those that are undeserving. Sinners are undeserving. We wouldn't understand the grace of God. Would we really understand the love of God to see that God died for sinners? Would we understand the mercy of God if some receive mercy and others do not? Would we understand the patience of God How would we understand the patience of God? Because there would be no need to be patient because there would be no rebellion to be patient for. We would not understand the wrath of God. Remember the Romans 9 passage where there are vessels of wrath that demonstrate God's wrath. We wouldn't understand the attribute of God's wrath. We wouldn't understand God's judgment. God is judge because there would be nothing to judge. We wouldn't understand the holiness of God, really, because we wouldn't have no contrast to the holiness of God. So the presence of evil brings to the forefront the glory of God and reveals all of these things in their their vividness, if you will. Okay, the reasons why we suffer. Charlie Clough comes up with, like, what, nine or so? Nine or ten reasons. Some of them I kind of categorize together, make it a little bit more simple. Sometimes we suffer just simply as a consequence of the choices that we make. God allows us to suffer consequences. That's part of the created universe. Secondly, we might suffer as discipline in order to correct. In fact, this last Sunday I dealt with Hebrews chapter 12 where that's an element of that passage. That's not the only element of of discipline, but that is one of the elements of God disciplining. So sometimes you will experience uh, suffering because God intervenes into your situation to change the direction of life, to correct. Thirdly, sometimes it is God refining. In other words, there may not be sin, but he's training you. That's also in that Hebrews 12 passage. He's developing, he's refining, he's setting you apart, he's preparing you for perhaps a ministry you might say that this is what God did in Johnny Erickson. 
he brought that to put her in a situation that she would have a worldwide ministry and impact thousands of people. And God may be doing the same thing, preparing you to have some kind of a ministry as well. And all of us suffer. And we ought to view suffering either evaluate if it's a consequence of sin, then we should view it, I don't want to do that again, I want to avoid those kinds of things. If it's a discipline for correction, then we want to change directions. If it's simply refining, then we can praise God. That's why James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, because he says that God is developing certain things in us. Fourthly, it can be for righteousness' sake. And there's a lot of passages, in fact, persecution, where you did not do anything except proclaim the name of Christ, and you suffered for it. And what God is doing is he's using it for righteousness' sake, probably to demonstrate to an unbelieving world that he has power to sustain you in the midst of persecution. And then fifthly, this is Job. There's some suffering. Job never got an answer. God never gave Job an answer. And sometimes we may never get an answer as to why I had this situation, why I had this problem, unknown to us. So I think five good reasons that kind of put together all of the scriptures in terms of the reasons for suffering. Make sense? We've looked at two major events, so we want to next look at the Genesis flood, and we'll concentrate on Genesis 6 through 8. And because that's such a long passage, we won't be able to look at every verse like we did in Genesis 3 and virtually Genesis 1. We pretty much looked at every verse in those chapters. So we'll highlight the major verses to get the sense of what is contained in all of those chapters. And just to kind of emphasize the importance, this chart, if you will, is kind of represents foundations, so everything in world history is based on what God did in uh, creation, in creating all things. That's why it's so important, and that's why the enemy has attacked it. Equally as important is that that original creation was damaged by the fall. Not only mankind, but the creation itself, and not just spiritually, but materially. So we have the fall based on the creation, and then everything builds on these two foundation stones. So, also the flood kind of is a consequence, ultimately, of the fall, because God is going to deal with sin, even though he started dealing with it in in Genesis 3. He's going to deal with it in a massive way in the Genesis flood. So the flood is based on the fall. And you can keep building. We're going to look at another major event, not as well known, and we don't have very many verses on it, but it also is founded on creation, fall, flood. We call that scattering or the Babel. What I've put on the chart there are just one-word descriptions there. And this is where the nations come from. The, The peoples are scattered and nations are formed. And out of the many nations, God calls one man. And from that one man, he has chosen, this is a summary of world history, by the way, he has chosen to build his nation. And that's the nation of Israel. And there's a few events that lead up to the nation of Israel. 
And what God has designed is a kingdom which goes all the way back to Genesis 1. God desired that man have dominion, so he has a dominion in terms of world events, and he put Israel as delegated position of dominion, and the intent was that they would be the prime nation over all other nations. Now, they failed, and that leads us to other things. But So, the kingdom, kingdom of Israel, first of all, historically, gives us all of the parameters of what God intends in terms of man ruling, at least on a national level, and what uh, God intends in terms of large-scale administrative dealings with mankind. So we have kind of the forerunners of an ultimate kingdom that will come about at the end of world history, an ideal kingdom. Now, because this kingdom had sinful people, because this kingdom had sinful people and sinful leaders, it eventually collapsed. But it anticipates the ultimate kingdom that I don't show on the chart, but a kingdom with a sinless king and regenerated people. But the kingdom anticipates, after the failure of the kingdom, everything is moving towards Messiah. The ultimate king. The ultimate one that will deal with evil in an ultimate way. That's Messiah. Israel's Messiah. And then we have uh, kind of an interim period. We call that the church. And then after that, Jesus will return and establish that ideal, perfect kingdom. So that's virtually all of world history right there, and the heart of it, and also the major events that we'll be dealing with. Well, with the flood, when we look at God, there are two perfections that stand out in terms of who God is and what he's like. God, in fact, could have destroyed Adam and Eve, and he would have been perfectly just and righteous to do that. He did not have to provide a means where they might receive a salvation or a restoration. So also, we're going to look at the Genesis flood, and God, in fact, did destroy all of humanity, except he saved the family of eight. So that's grace. And God displays grace throughout the Bible. It begins even with, you might even say, creation. He didn't have to create, but he chose to create a universe, and then When man fell, he chose to restore. And the story of the flood is a story of God's grace where he preserves humanity through uh, that family of Noah. But it's also a vivid picture of God's wrath. This is what judgment looks like. This is what dealing with sin involves. And when God is dealing with sin, he's separating out that that destroys from that that he wants to preserve. And that's the story of the flood. And God does that by pouring out wrath, or you might call it even judgment, and very significant wrath poured out in the Genesis flood. And just one verse that captures both is Psalm 87.15, But thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious. He bestows good things to those that are undeserving. That's gracious. Slow to anger. So there's wrath. But he's slow to anger. He lets time go by. He allows for repentance. And once sin has reached its 
ultimate degradation, then God intervenes with wrath or anger. And abundant in loving kindness and truth, other positive attributes. Loving kindness related to grace. And this is a covenant word. We'll look at this more carefully later on. So, in our little timeline here, we have the creation as the first major event of world history. And I'm using probably the most conservative timeline that you can come up with. And these dates are basically that conservative timeline. And I'm relying pretty heavily on a scholar by the name of Harold Honer, who's done a lot of work in chronology and that sort of thing. And I've worked a lot of this out myself using some of his benchmark dating and that sort of thing. And when you do that, I come up with a date for creation of 4143 B.C. So the earth is relatively young. And there's a fall shortly after. There's no date with it, but it has to be before the the birth of the first sun. So somewhere in that time frame. And we don't have a time frame for Cain nor Abel. We do have a time frame for Seth. So it has to be before Seth, certainly, and obviously before Cain and Abel. And then the date for the uh, flood, using the careful numbering in the book of Genesis, I come up with 2487. Or if you want to round it off, about 2500 B.C. These are historical events. Can't stress that enough. This is world history. These are the most important events of world history. So let's take a look, and I've got this outline on your outline sheet. I divide the book of Genesis into two parts. Primeval history is the first division, and then you can divide that into the history of creation. We looked at that, chapters 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. We looked at the early history of mankind from chapter 2, verse 4 to the end of chapter 3. And now we're going to look at the early history of civilization. So these are kind of the three main subdivisions of the first division in the book of Genesis. And I'm just going to summarize very quickly what leads up to the Genesis flood from 4 to chapter 6. We have kind of a description in chapter 6 of where civilization ends up. And where it ends up necessitates God intervening to basically save mankind from himself, from destroying himself. And in that, that can be divided into parts. First, we have a decline of civilization. That's chapters 4 through 6, verse 8. And that's the portion that I'm going to summarize. And the first part of that is we have an ungodly line through Cain. That's chapter 4 through 1 through 24. So here's kind of a summary of chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, we have the beginning of sin, and we have deception involved, deception of the woman, and the sin is, at this stage, individual, deals with Adam and Eve, and sin is always ultimately against God, and we also saw last time in chapter 3, we we saw that the skins were God's provision for sin. Sacrifice of an animal in order to provide the skins as substitute. The animal was a substitute for the death of first man and the first woman. So that's kind of a quick summary of Genesis 3. 
Beginning in Genesis chapter 4, we're going to see that sin progresses very rapidly from from simply deception to premeditated murder. Pretty drastic jump. That's the nature of depravity. And we also see that now it involves, rather than just individuals, it involves a whole family. So it destroys, to some extent, the first family, basically. One of the members of the family is extinguished. And it's not only against God, it's always against God, but now it has progressed to fellow men as well. So it's progressing. And this is what we have in these early chapters. Uh, I think that's the emphasis of these chapters, is a progression of sin leading up to the Genesis flood. Now, we don't have a lot of detail. We just have enough to kind of get this sense that God must intervene to preserve that that he loves. And we also see that sacrifice is involved in chapter 4. So the first man and the first woman, it's implied, learn that sacrifice was necessary to maintain fellowship with the holy God. And what is at issue between Cain and Abel is what is acceptable sacrifice. And what, I think even more than the uh, sacrifice itself, but what is the attitude that is necessary in sacrifice? There's a debate amongst theologians as to the extent of whether the sacrifice itself is in view or whether it's clearly the attitudes is is in view at least. So that's a summary of three and four. Cain, he's the firstborn. And if you look at that passage, Eve is very optimistic. She creates a child with the help of God. You can make a case that uh, Eve might have thought that this this is the seed of the woman. She might have thought that that firstborn was the means that God was going to use to deal ultimately with sin. And it's very optimistic. And he takes care of half of Adam's responsibilities dealing with crops. Seems that there were two areas that were part of the creation mandate which involved the development of food sources, crops. And the sacrifice that Cain brought is an unacceptable sacrifice, at least an unacceptable attitude that leads to anger, that leads to murder, that ends up that Cain is really the seed of Satan, one of the seeds of Satan, rather than the seed of the woman, or that seed of the woman. Abel, who actually is eventually killed, is only the second born. And the naming of Abel, I can't remember the name, uh, but it's more pessimistic. It's not as optimistic as Cain. And the second area of dealing with the creation mandate is dealing with the animals or the flocks. Subduing the earth. Remember, he was to subdue the earth, but he was also to subdue the animals. So Abel is one that takes care of the flocks. Adam dealt with both. So the labor is divided amongst the two sons. And his sacrifice is found acceptable because the book of Hebrews tells us he offered it in faith. Hebrews 11. And he's a worshiper rather than one that lifts his fist up to God in anger. He's a worshiper, as evidenced by the sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews also tells us that he's... Actually, Jesus tells us that he's a prophet. Now, Jesus, you remember the passage where 
Late in his ministry, he's condemning Israel and basically saying that they've killed all the prophets beginning with Abel to Zechariah. So Jesus lists Abel as the first prophet of the Bible. And he's a seed of the woman in the spiritual sense in that he is a worshiper of God, although he's killed. I have a question on the seed of Satan. Does that mean this child was conceived in sin? She was not impregnated by Satan. Now, what this means is that Cain never became a believer. And in Scripture, we have references to him in the, in the New Testament, and he's always described as an unbeliever. Jesus, yeah, look at, uh, what chapter is it? John chapter 8, I believe. You might look up John chapter 8, I believe, where he's reprimanding the uh, Jewish leaders. And these are Jewish leaders, and he calls them uh, sons of Satan. The unbeliever, in a spiritual sense, is a seed of Satan. Cain's sin, if we could summarize it, he refused to worship properly. He didn't have a proper attitude. He didn't heed God's counsel after. You know, God counseled him. He basically told him that if he does right, then his countenance can be lifted up. First biblical counsel. So he refused to heed the counsel. He refused to love his brother. Fourthly, he refused to confess his sin. There was opportunity, even after he didn't heed the counsel, there was opportunity to confess sin. He never did. And he did not accept his punishment. He went away complaining after God basically sent him out. And actually there's grace there in that God sent him out as a means of preserving. So five things in terms of Cain where he refused, uh, this is why he's the seed of Satan, is because he shows no evidence of belief in any of the passages, Old Testament or New Testament. And it's from Cain, in chapter 4, I pretty much summarized uh, the first 15 verses there. And if you look at verse 16, Loretta, do you want to start reading it? You want to read 4.16. Then Cain presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. East of Eden, okay. After he's basically cast out. And read 17, and then the chapter just gives us a genealogy of Cain. You want to read it too? Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Anna, and he built a city and called the name of the city Anna. After the name of his son... Okay. Now, this is a different Enoch. In fact, the names in this genealogy, there, some of them are the same names in another genealogy, beginning in verse 25 and all of chapter 5. And notice the building of cities very early. These are not cavemen. In fact, that's kind of the emphasis here. There's no evolution whatsoever in the book of Genesis. No early primitive man some believe that Adam was probably the most intelligent man that ever lived. Adam and Eve, I guess she would be included. I mean, these cave people, I mean, there have to be cave. We'll talk about them. They were like after the something. Like Pro- probably after Babel, and I'll explain the reason for that. No cavemen. 
So we have the beginnings of the ungodly line, or you might say these are the seed of Satan. And some of the major motifs, there seems to be prosperity, early civilization, cities, as you see in verse 17. It's also godless. There's no reference to God in all of that. In fact, the very opposite of that, there's Lamech in verse 23, who is a bigamist. There are seven names in the genealogy, and we have all of the beginnings of culture, high culture. This is not, like I said, primitive. And this world, this is worldly culture. Not that culture is bad, but apart from God, that's what makes it evil. And we saw cities in 417. So they knew architecture, they knew how to handle waste, they knew how to develop sources of water, they knew how to deal with agriculture to be able to feed people that lived in cities. Cities are a very complex concept, if you will. And right off the bat, we have cities. We have polygamy, we have the negative as well. That's in verse 19. Uh, Lamech took to himself two wives, verse 19. We have commercialism, verse 20. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Probably an allusion to commercialism. The arts, 421. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre, L-Y-R-E, and pipe. So they, they had stringed instruments. They're not easy to make. Ask Linda, right? Stringed instruments are not easy to make. They also had wind instruments. So they had the range. Verse 23, what does that one tell us? They had poetry. They had literature. This is a poetic little piece in 23 and 24. They had implements, and they probably had the development of all of the metals. Iron, brass, copper. Verse 22. As for Zilla, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements. So they had mechanical devices, and who knows what else. This is just a real brief summary of what they had. But they also had violence, verses 23 and 24, that little poetic piece there. It's filled with uh, the violence of Lamech. So this is worldly culture. Within cities, it's not uncommon to have violence and have all the problems, all the social problems, polygamy, but it has all of the positive elements as well, commercialism, arts, implements. So this is very high culture. No primitive people there. We have two seeds. We have the seed of Cain, or the seed of the serpent. He ends up cursed. And he is the father of the ungodly line. And from Cain, we have worldly culture. And what we want to do in this course, in fact, those of you that may be inclined in music, you might do a biblical foundation for music. That would be a good topic to do something on. Or a biblical foundation for culture, even. And contrast it with the worldly culture that comes from from Cain. God's not against culture. God's not against music. God is not against technology. We've said that already many times. But when it is only serving man's purposes and leaves God out, then it becomes what we call worldly. Abel, seed of the woman, he's martyred, first martyr. He's 
would be in the godly line, although he doesn't have any descendants, but his brother will produce the godly line, and he walked with God. At least that's what's implied in chapter 4. So that's the ungodly line. Let's take a quick look at the godly line, beginning in verse 25, and that runs through all of chapter 5. And again, I'm just going to summarize here. Uh, We don't have time to look at all of these passages. The major motifs that are emphasized after each one, it says, and he died. Kind of emphasizing the old nature ends in death. Sin always ends in death. And every one of them, it says he died. There's one, and most of them walked with God, but one very evidently, in fact, it describes him as walking with God two, two times. That's the other Enoch. This is the godly Enoch. This is the Enoch of faith that is also described in the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And in this list, there are ten names. And in those ten names, we have specific chronological dating, when they had their first son and when they died. tells us how old they were. Which indicates these are real people that lived real lives with real number of years, and they had children at certain times. What's interesting, and I'll comment some more on this when we get to the, later on when we talk more about the flood, long ages, long ages, 900 years and some more than that. In fact, the average age is from 8, subtracted out Enoch, because that's kind of a an anomaly. Yeah, he did not die. He was taken. He's the only one that did not die. And the average age was 875 and a half years. Long ages. Now, obviously, the secularist looks at this and says, well, that's an indication that this is legend. This is mythological. Couldn't be literal. And even some uh, Christians have a hard time with these ages. I think there's an explanation why the ages changed, and I'm going to give you that in the apologetic portion. I already mentioned there's similarity in some of the names. There's an Enoch in both lines. There's a, I think there's a Lamech in both lines. So that's the godly line, Seth. In fact, we want to read verse, let's read 25. Do you want to read 25? Then to 425. Adam had she gave birth to a son right after okay. she named him Seth saying God is going to and what's most important here is we have two distinct lines we have an ungodly line we have a godly line and the emphasis of this line is these walked with God these did not and beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, this is leading up to the flood, we have a corruption of the godly line. Now, one of the explanations as to who's in view in those verses is there's an intermarriage between the two lines. That's only one of the uh, the views. Another view is that there's intermarriage between angelic creatures and humans and The three views are held by equally competent scholars, and it's hard to decide. I don't think we have enough data to really make a conclusive decision. But one thing that it does imply, the implication here, is the corrupting effects of sin. That's our first implication. 
corrupting effects of sin. And what we're going to see over and over in Scripture are these, what I describe as cycles of sin. We've already seen one cycle of sin. We're going to look at a second one. The second one is leading up to the, the flood. first one would be Adam and Eve. And this is what happens. And, and we see this throughout, throughout history, both Old Testament and New Testament. We're probably seeing this in our culture today. First of all, it begins with God works a work of grace. And in terms of Adam and Eve, we could say that work of grace was that he created to begin with. That's a work of grace. But then, and by the way, what we have also is the second cycle of sin would begin with Adam and Eve as well. The work of grace is that God provided salvation for Adam and Eve. Secondly, sin begins its corrupting effects. And the corrupting effects began, first of all, with Adam and Eve in the first temptation. And you can see a degeneration amongst the two first man and first woman. But then, the second cycle, beginning with Cain, we see the corrupting effects beginning in Cain, and we will see that continue through the the ungodly line. And then in chapter 6, it's going to have an impact on the godly line as well, such that all the earth is corrupted. So we're going to see the corrupting effects of sin. Thirdly, God patiently endures sin, and he allows it to reach its full corruption. Now, we don't see that as clearly with Adam and Eve, because God deals with it immediately, but we definitely see it in terms of the flood. God waits these generations, and you can see a degeneration, and particularly the last phase of that degeneration is when the godly line is corrupted. And then, the fourth cycle of sin, you can guess. He stops enduring. (laughs) Yep, he stops enduring. Yep, exactly. God intervenes to judge and save. Remember, God deals with evil, and he does it throughout history. And the second intervention of God, he intervened in Adam and Eve. Remember, he took the initiative, and now God is going to intervene and judge, but he's also going to save eight people on a boat. We're going to see this cycle of sin throughout Scripture. And even the church, the church age, is going to end in apostasy, and when it reaches its full corruption, we're going to see that God will intervene there as well. Make sense? So the cycle of sins is the first implication already tells us God is going to do. Remember the creation? Remember chapter 1, verse 31? Elohim saw, what? What did he see in 131? Not just good, very good, very good. It was very good. But from there, after the first sin, we have that progress of sin that we just saw the cycles of. And when we get to chapter 6, verse 5, what does Yahweh see there? Would somebody read it? Mackenzie, it's your turn. What does the Lord see? 6, 5. Okay. That is a passage, we could spend an hour on that, just developing the depravity of man, on that, just that verse by itself. 
that just to highlight some things. First of all, this is God's evaluation. It's God that is evaluating. And what he is evaluating, what he sees, is the wickedness of man is great on the earth. And he's looking at this comprehensively. This is all of mankind. This is after the godly line is corrupted as well. And every intent of their thoughts. In other words, it's not just minor things. It's basically permeated people to a large extent. Sin has reached its full corrupting effects on mankind. Intent of the thoughts of his heart, only evil. In other words, no thought to good. Only evil continually, never ending. And what does he see? The wickedness of man was great. And that's the leading up to uh, the, the Genesis fraud, and that's kind of the background to it, is the state of man's situation. So we've seen the decline of civilization and next we're going to see the destruction of civilization. That's the Genesis flood, beginning in verse 9 all the way to the end of chapter 8, 822. So on your outline sheet, this is the next part on your outline. And first of all, we have the designs for the flood. We can break this down. Chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 7, verse 5. This is on your outline. We're going to see the deluge of the flood itself. And like I said, I'm going to just be able to summarize it. Too many verses to go into it as much detail as we did Genesis 3 or Genesis 1. The deluge from 6 to 24. And then we have the decrease of the flood. Or I'm using D's as alliteration here, if you hadn't noticed. You could also call this the recession of the flood. Basically, all of chapter 8. Let's highlight some verses. Somebody, who's next? Holland, you want to read? Read where Mackenzie left off. Leave 6 through 8. This is the corrupting of the godly line still, or the corruption of all humanity. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of home, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have found favor in the eyes of Okay, so there's the setting for the Genesis flood. Not only do we have God's evaluation, but we see the need, but we also see that there are individuals that God wants to preserve. And let's look at 6, 11 through 14, Connie. This is part of the design for the flood. Emphasis on the corruption again. Okay, very specific directions, and there's more. You read on, there's more specific descriptions. So we have a specific design. First of all, God's going to bring it. He's the one that uh, has designed it. He's the one that has intended it, and he's going to bring it. And the design is primarily for the preservation of those that he's going to save. And let's read a couple of verses that just describe briefly the deluge. Linda, read verse 7, 4. I'm four, it's seven days I will cause I will wipe from the face of the ground 
Okay, so it's going to be catastrophic at a scale that you can't even imagine. Loretta, do you want to read 11 and 12, chapter 7? In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month. Stop there. Notice. What do we notice already? What does that tell you? Specific time frame, specific date. In fact, I'm going to give you a complete chronology of the Genesis flood, where all of the major parts of the flood are specified in time. So what does this tell us? This is what? It's not once upon a time, but this is historical narrative. This is an event. This really happened. Just like the other events that we've looked at, we have these little notes with specific dates on in this occasion. And there's other indications on the other two major events that we've looked at already. Okay, read on. On the same day, all the fountains of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I think you skipped something there. All the fountains of the deep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, let's see. It's all my fault. (laughs) You sound like the woman. (laughs) We'll come back to that. I'm going to explain that from a scientific perspective. Keep reading. And the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And that's significant as well scientifically. We'll discuss that. Okay? We'll have a very clear chronology throughout. We'll see that later on. Let's skip to chapter 8, verse 3, and we'll see a decrease or a receding of the flood. Whose turn? Mackenzie. 8-3. One hundred and fifty days, very specific, the receding of the waters. So we have a, a long period of time. This is this is a huge event. It's incomprehensible, and I'm going to try and demonstrate that as we look at it later on when we do the apologetic portion. Okay, so that brings us to this universal flood that I think if you take in all the details, and what I've tried to do here is summarize bringing together some of these details that you read and all of the others and come up with kind of a list of things that indicate that this flood is universal in scope, that that's the biblical description. In other words, this is the scriptural description of a universal flood. In the apologetic portion, I'm going to give you the evidence that we can look at today for a universal flood scientifically. So both in terms of what the text teaches and what uh, we can conclude from science is that this was a worldwide, or we describe that as a universal flood. Make sense? And the reason we're going to do the scientific part and the apologetic part is because Most scholars today, most secularists, deny that there was even a flood at all. And I'm going to try and show you that uh, there is so overwhelming evidence, scientific evidence, for a Genesis flood, 
that people just basically miss it. They can't see the forest for the trees. So let's take a look at the flood. First of all, it's a judgment upon the wicked, as always. Remember, God is dealing with sin throughout world history. And here is a major event where he deals with sin. And judgment is what? A separating out of that that is destroying what God loves. And God separates out that that he loves or that that he preserves. And first of all, it's a separating out of the wicked, and it's the wicked of all all creatures, all humanity. It's universal. The text stresses all mankind, but it also involves all the earth. It's universal in terms of the earth. The description, the biblical description is universal in terms of the earth. The church, the majority view of the church is that there was a local flood, and it's a compromise. Those that hold to that don't know of the evidence that I'm going to share with you. Well, we won't have time today, but we'll get to it next week. So the description, the biblical description, it's universal in terms of the whole earth. It's not local. It's also, remember there's both grace and there's wrath. This is the wrath portion. This is the grace portion. There's deliverance for the righteous. And they don't become righteous on their own. I'll show you that we have the first word for grace when it refers to to Noah. So it's a deliverance of the righteous. It's also, it's selective in terms of Noah's family, and it includes animals, preserving animals. So that's kind of a summary of what chapter 6 through 8 are going to give us. So what I'm going to give you now is Genesis flood versus historical geology. Well, we'll do that part later. First thing we're going to look at is the biblical evidence. Biblical evidence. So first of all, Genesis 6 through 9, we've already read the verse that tells us that this is God's determination, which tells us if God decided this, then we should trust what God says in describing what he decided to do. So it always starts, remember everything starts with God. We've seen all of our foundations. We start with him. So in terms of the Genesis flood, it begins with God's determination. And the key verses here, the Lord the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. God's determination. So that's 6 7, 617. Behold, I, even I. Did you get it clear there? Any ambiguity? Satan didn't bring the flood. God. He, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth. So that's the first thing that the text emphasizes. And there's more verses that emphasize this as well. These are just two of them. So we have God's determination. Secondly, we have universal corruption. We read those verses, or some of them. We didn't read all of them. Universal corruption. Universal destruction. Now, I'm going to stress that when we talk about the scientific evidence, but the biblical evidence also supports that idea. The the verses that Loretta read speak of something that is so huge you can't imagine it. And I'm going to show you some potential things that happened during the flood that are on tectonic scale. So there's universal destruction. And most floods in our lifetime, major floods, even like even like Katrina, what are we talking about there with like the Hurricane Katrina and all the flooding there? We're talking about what? A few days. 
and then water recedes, you know, leaves lots of destruction. But we're talking about a rain event of 40 days. We're talking about another event where water is rising and moving for 150 days. This is huge. Unimaginable. We can't conceive of it. So there's universal destruction. So this destruction, and if you look, again, if you look at the details, the details, all of the earth is involved. All the earth. And that's stressed over and over and over. All the earth. All mankind is stressed over and over. We read one of the verses. All mankind. With the exceptions, obviously, of those that he saved. All air-breathing animals. Every creature died in the Genesis flood. Air-breathing. Except those that were on the ark, obviously. And that's the exception of the animals and the exception of mankind. So, huge destruction. The flood is described in universal language. If you put together all of the descriptions, the language, I've got a chart here that kind of illustrates that. In fact, a key word in chapter 7 is the Hebrew word all. And I'll show it to you. Sometimes it's translated all, and sometimes it's translated every. And it talks about all flesh, all the earth. Isn't that the exception of the water creatures? Were they an exception or not? They were an exception, but a lot of them were destroyed as well. Yeah, a lot of them would have survived water creatures. Yeah, but there's... What I'm going to show you is the fossil record is a record of the Genesis Flood, and all of those, and there's a lot of fish, there's a lot of sea creatures that are involved in the fossil record. So all the earth, all the fountains of the deep burst, whatever those fountains are, I'll tell you what they are in a moment, what I think a good theory is. All the mountains were covered by 15 cubits. How much is a cubit? About 18 inches, more or less. So that would be 45 feet. And some engineers have calculated that a boat the size of the ark with the dimensions of the ark, that was probably adequate for the ark to float above all of the mountains without bumping into mountains. So all of the mountains, all of mankind, all flesh over here pertains to creation, uh, creatures, animal creatures. And it is such a flood that all successive generations are affected. All successive generations are affected. And sometimes the same Hebrew word is translated every. It's a Hebrew word, kol. Kol. C-O-L would be the transliteration. Everything is destroyed. Every living thing. Every kind. Remember, God created in kinds. Every kind is destroyed. The waters were everywhere on the face of the earth. In other words, over all continents. Every creeping thing was destroyed. Every swarming thing. Every beast of the field. Every living creature. These are specifically called out in different texts. So that's universal language. And that runs all through chapter 6, 7, and 8. Even the terms for the Genesis flood are unique. The Hebrew word, and since you don't know Hebrew, you, that doesn't mean anything to you, but it's pronounced mabul. So if you wanted to translate 
alliterated, it would be M-A-B-U-L, Mabul. That word is only used in the Old Testament in reference to the Genesis Flood. So the Genesis Flood is basically a unique flood of all of Scripture. And that's partly so because God said in chapter 9 that he's not going to bring another flood. And the word there, he's not going to bring another mabul. And since there's always been floods, then just the existence of floods would basically go against what God promised in not bringing a mabul. But this is unique. And there's other Hebrew words that's yeor, another Hebrew word for floods that are used in other contexts. And these are all local, small floods or large movements of water. There's also nahar, is another Hebrew word. But every time that it's referring to the Genesis flood, it's always mabul and never using any of the other Hebrew words. There's also nahal. That's also another word for flooding or large movements of water. And interestingly, what might you expect in the New Testament? Do you think the same thing happens in the New Testament, or do you think... What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's the same. In fact, in Greek, it's kataklousmas. What do we get from kataklousmas in English? Cataclysm. And every time that the word kataklusmas is used in the New Testament, it always is referring to the Genesis Flood. Uh, Jesus refers to the Genesis Flood. And Peter, and they always use the word kataklusmas. So it's cataclysmic. And you might expect in the Greek language there are other words for large movements of water or floods. Patamas is one of them. Flemura is another one. These are words that are used of other kinds of floods. P-L-E-M-M-U-R-A would be the transliteration. So the Bible uses unique terms to describe this unique once-in-history event. So that's the universal language. Just the existence of the ark itself argues for a large flood, a universal flood. How long do you want to close for us today? Well, I just think that we can come together and learn more about your work, but the amazing things that you want to us, and 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 you